This is Health Dose, a conversational podcast that focuses on issues concerning your health. I'm Jerry O'Donnell, and on this episode of Health Dose, we're going to talk about sleep apnea with Dr. Steve Cox, an otolaryngologist who sees patients of all ages at his offices in Midland and Gladwin. Health Dose asked Dr. Cox, what is sleep apnea? There's a variety of different things that are associated with sleep apnea. There's two different kinds of sleep apnea, first of all. So there's obstructive sleep apnea, where something in your airway, starting from the tongue all the way down to the voice box, blocks off your airway and causes these obstructive events, which restricts your airflow and thus your oxygen at night when you're sleeping. The other is a central apnea, where your brain is not sending a stimulus to your lungs to take that breath. So that is not really the focus of what I do as an ear, nose, and throat doctor. I help out more with the obstructive component, but there are two different types. Speaking to the different causes of sleep apnea, it can be anywhere from the obstruction with your tongue, the back of your throat, your epiglottis, even your tonsils can block off your airway. So there's a a number of different things that can cause this. Who is at most risk for sleep apnea? There is a variety of different studies out there that show anywhere from 15 to 30% of men in America will have sleep apnea as it's currently defined. If you're a little more stringent on those definitions of sleep apnea, it might be closer to 15%. Women are closer to 5% risk to 10%. So it's typically something that affects males more than females. Mm -hmm. Those patients who are in the overweight to obese level are at more risk And actually, if your neck circumference is larger than 17 inches, that's where you really start to get concerned about having sleep apnea for men, and it's 16 in women. Some of the other things are age. So unfortunately, our bodies age with us, and things start to get a little more flimsy, just like the tissues in your throat. And so all those things can contribute to possible sleep apnea. But when we're talking about obstructive sleep apnea, Are we talking about the collapse of your throat, the back of your mouth? What are we talking about when it comes to what's obstructing my breathing at night? Sure. So that's a good question. So in some of the stages of our sleep, one of the final ones is REM, and your body is essentially going paralyzed. So the tongue, your throat, your epiglottis, all of these things relax, and they can obstruct your airway. It's not something I could tell you that's a one-size-fits-all, but it is something that it can be your tongue, your tonsils, your throat, or your voice box that's cutting off your airway at night. What are some of the warning signs that a person has sleep apnea? Well, there's a number of different things that patients will come in and say. So they may say that they're excessively tired throughout the day, falling asleep unintentionally, maybe watching a television show and nodding off, maybe in class nodding off, at work nodding off, and most dangerously, of course, uh, while driving. It is something that we sometimes see. About 10 to 30 percent of patients with undiagnosed sleep apnea will have morning headaches. So when they first wake up, they'll have kind of a tension headache. And so that can be often a warning sign for it. Patients who have what's called bruxism or clenching or grinding their teeth, there is some association with sleep apnea in this. Believe it or not, sleep apnea is strongly associated with reflux. That can cause reflux as well. Other than the fact that you're tired all the time, what are some of the effects that sleep apnea has on my body? That's a that's the most important question. So sleep apnea, a lot of people correlate with just loud truck driver snoring that shakes the room. And it's, it is that, but it's also other things. So folks who have undiagnosed sleep apnea... Over 10 years of life, at a 60% survival rate, 
compared to those patients also followed in that 10-year span who don't have sleep apnea, it's closer to a 95% survival rate. So this really diminishes your ability to function from many different causes. One of the most important ones are cardiovascular. So you're three times more likely to have things like a myocardial infarction or a heart attack, more likely to have stroke, more likely to have rhythm problems with your heart. Additionally, they've shown that there's problems with your ability to focus or attention. There's cognitive deficits that can happen from this. Some of the other things that we've already touched on is motor vehicle accidents. Mm -hmm. So someone with severe sleep apnea that's undiagnosed or untreated, you're five times more likely to get into a car wreck from this. There is some association with things like diabetes, believe it or not, and sleep apnea. Like we already talked about, you know, if you are overweight or obese, that may also correlate with the diabetes, but all those things are intertangled Mm -hmm. with sleep apnea. So sleep apnea isn't necessarily the same as snoring. In fact, I've been told that it's when you stop snoring that you need to worry. And that's absolutely correct. So Snoring, we we see patients who have snoring as one of their complaints, and it may be a component of sleep apnea, but there's also just primary snoring where you just, it sounds like you're sawing wood quite loudly, but you don't ever pause in your breathing. And so it's important to talk about getting tested for those patients who do have snoring and who maybe have some of those other symptoms we already talked about. So snoring or apnea leads to less breath going into my body, which leads to a diminished a diminishing amount of oxygen in my blood, and that's what causes the stroke, the heart attack, the high blood pressure, all the other things that are associated? Right. So as we know, oxygen is important. It's vital for life. And so it's essentially like trying to hold your breath throughout your sleep and expecting your brain to work, your heart to work, all the other organs in your body to work. And trying to do that for a long period of time, it it clearly shortens our life. So for folks who may have apnea or who have a partner, well, first of all, how, how often is your patient referred by their partner? That's a good question. So most of the referrals that we see have already come in and have been diagnosed with sleep apnea. But the primary care doctors, commonly bed partners, will tell the patient that I can't continue to do this because you're scaring me, A, because you're gasping, choking, for air at night or you're snoring so loud I can't sleep and folks will end up sleeping in other rooms Mm -hmm. and it it can be a real strain on relationships. So I do commonly hear that that is the onset of at least getting tested for sleep apnea. How do you test for sleep apnea? That's a good question. So the quick answer is something called polysomnogram or a sleep study. So they've actually come up with home sleep studies now where they send you essentially a box and it has a bunch of electrodes that you follow the instructions and you put them on your body and you sleep at home. The fidelity of that test is not as high as going to a sleep lab and having a sleep attendant watch and monitor you sleep, but it has certainly allowed us to diagnose more patients who otherwise would be waiting for weeks to months to get into a sleep lab. So there's definitely different options to investigate that. And then, of course, now with the new technology that Apple has or any of these other companies, you're working on pulse oximeters on your watches and rhythm detection, too, to see if people are having any signs of rhythm that might be related to sleep apnea. You call it a polysomnogram. Polysomnogram. What things does that monitor while I'm sleeping? There are several things that are monitored, and it, again, differs from the in-lab versus the home. It's going to monitor your brain activity to look for what are called arousals. So when we're sleeping and we stop breathing, 
our brain essentially has almost like a panic attack and has what are called arousals. And that's what they're looking for to help diagnose the sleep apnea. It's monitoring your heart rate. It's monitoring your oxygen level. It's monitoring the respirations in and out of your nose and the pressure in which the air is moving inside of and outside of your nose. And of course, your chest cavity moving up and down. And that helps us distinguish if our brain is sending the signal or not to take a breath. Is treatment always a CPAP machine? And first of all, explain what a CPAP machine is, maybe BiPAP as well. And is that always the treatment? Sleep apnea is not just something that affects adults. Children are also diagnosed, of course, with sleep apnea, and their treatment modalities are different between adults and kids. And kids, almost invariably, you start with a surgical procedure called a tonsillectomy, where we remove the tonsils and the adenoids, and that is, it's very often curative for their sleep apnea. Unfortunately, adults, there's a difference between what the cause could be for the sleep apnea. As we already talked about, our tissues may be aging. It might be weight-related. There are a number of other things that can be causing the sleep apnea. So CPAP therapy is the gold standard for treating patients with sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. And me, as the surgeon who does sleep surgery, I want you to use the CPAP. If you can use the CPAP, that is my goal, my dream. But when you don't, that's when you come to me and we have a discussion about the remaining options. Those are not as good as the CPAP, but they are important to think about because, as we already talked about, untreated sleep apnea can kill you. I mean, it's a very serious problem. So there's surgical options, and then there's also things like mouth guards that will move your jaw forward and help you sleep at night as well. So the CPAP is not the only thing. Correct. The CPAP, while it's the best thing, it is not the only thing. So if you've tried a CPAP and you couldn't tolerate it, don't think that there aren't options for you. Mm -hmm. And a CPAP just causes positive air pressure in my nose and in my throat. Is that, correct. Is that correct? Is that the way you say it? Yep. So like we mentioned before, when we're sleeping and get to that REM phase where our muscles become lax, the CPAP is kind of like what's called a pneumatic splint. So it is opening our airways up with pressure. Mm -hmm. And as we're taking a breath in, it holds that airway open. And then the BiPAP allows that airway to stay open as we take that breath out. And so it's life-saving, again, for these patients with sleep apnea. But you talked about surgical options. Is that just removal of the epiglottis? Is that the only surgical option there is? That would be a procedure you'd hate me for if I had to do that on you. So there are a number of different surgical options that we offer in sleep surgery. So when I'm seeing a patient for options for sleep surgery, one of the common things I'll start with is, of course, the physical exam in the office. Some patients are candidates for just removing the tonsils and the adenoids if their anatomy favors that as a curative option for their sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. And that's something we could look for when you first come to our office for an evaluation. I would say a majority of the time we're going to the operating room for what's called a drug-induced sleep evaluation. And that's just a fancy way of saying, I watch you breathe while we put you into a temporary sleep-like state. And so what I'm looking for on that is I'm watching the way your palate moves. I'm watching the way your throat moves, your tongue moves, your epiglottis moves while you're sleeping to see where the collapse lies. Based on what that information shows us, we decide what is the right surgical option for you if there is one. What do you do in surgery 
when you have figured out that there's something wrong with the palate? What are the procedures that you do? There's this new novel thing that is really hot on the market right now that is called the Inspire device. And so that is a hypoglossal nerve stimulator. Or another way of thinking about that is it's a pacemaker for your tongue. So this is an outpatient procedure we do where there's two incisions, one on your neck, one on your chest. The chest is where the pacemaker is, and there's a stimulator lead in your neck. And that helps give pulses to your tongue while you're asleep and essentially opening up your airway and allowing you to breathe without using a CPAP device. So there are specific criteria for that, but if you meet those criteria, it has been shown to be an outstanding surgical option for those patients who qualify. There's a bunch of other treatment options. Some people might be familiar with the oldest one, the UP3, which is a fancy term called uvulopalatopharyngoplasty, which we essentially will remove the tonsils and we put some stitches in to shorten and tighten your palate and recreate your uvula, make you a new uvula. There's other procedures where if you have prominent lingual tonsils, large lingual tonsils. So taking a step back, believe it or not, you have more tonsils than the ones you can see in your mouth. There are tonsils on the back of your tongue, and they can be quite large and actually block the airway off. So some people need those removed, and we actually will do that in the operating room. Some people's tongue gets larger. So the tongue, it's not just a muscle. It actually has a lot of fat in it too. So as we gain weight, we also gain weight in our tongue, and that can cause what's called macroglossia or a huge tongue. And so we do do base of tongue reductions to try to open that airway up. And finally, there's some procedures where we, while this sounds a little crazy and maybe medieval, we suspend your voice box from your jaw with a couple of wires called hyomandibular suspension if your epiglottis is flopping into your airway. So there's a lot of options. They sound... Wow. (laughs) Yeah, they sound incredible, but the Inspire is the most exciting one because it has the best success rate right now. At what point do I know that I need to see a specialist about my sleep problems? If you are having trouble with, or perhaps a bed partner is telling you you have trouble with excessive snoring, excessive daytime sleepiness, gasping or choking for air while you're sleeping, you're falling asleep unintentionally or while driving, all of those reasons are reasons to seek out help for a sleep study. And then hopefully you qualify, if you're diagnosed with sleep apnea, you would start with a CPAP. You would see a sleep surgical specialist if you failed CPAP therapy. How do you determine that somebody is not a candidate for using a CPAP or a BiPAP machine? Almost everyone starts with CPAP for their sleep apnea. It's really those patients who maybe have claustrophobia and can't tolerate wearing it, or for whatever reason, perhaps they have a deviated nasal septum and large turbinates that are causing trouble with nasal congestion. They can't tolerate wearing it because they can't breathe through their nose. Mm-hmm. All of those are reasons why people may to- may not tolerate it. Or frankly, some people just hate it and they don't sleep well with it and they throw it off at night. And so if they're wearing it less than the required amount, that's when you need to seek out other options. That is Dr. Steve Cox, an otolaryngologist who sees patients of all ages at his offices in Midland and Gladwin. As an ENT, Dr. Cox takes care of the youngest and the oldest members of society. Whether it's placing ear tubes for recurrent infections, performing sinus surgery for patients with chronic sinus problems, or helping someone manage their sleep apnea, Dr. Cox takes pride in his work 
to help improve his patient's quality of life. As always, if you have health concerns, the best place to start is your primary care provider. If you need help finding a primary care provider, go to mymichigan.org slash doctors. Thanks for listening. I'm Jerry O'Donnell. Check back again soon for another episode of Health Dose.